It's Christmas and the children are singing. The text we're going to look at today is Matthew chapter 2, and in this text we're going to say, thank you, we're going to say it's Christmas and the parents are crying. We're going to look at a text today that uh, basically we don't talk about very much. We're going to look at Matthew uh, chapter 2 from verses 13 through 23. And in all of my years in ministry, in all of my school uh, ages, I never once heard this uh, text used with children in the room. So it's probably wise that they're leaving, because we're looking at the flight into Egypt. If you have a Bible, please turn with me. Uh, to Matthew uh, chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 13. Kim, the screen's not working here, so uh, you're going to need to transition that for me. Matthew chapter 2 from verse uh, 13, and uh, what we're going to do if, is look at the text. You're not going to see it on the screen, even if it works for me. You're not going to see it on the screen, because today I want to get you into the text Okay, I want to get you into the text. And so that basically means if you've got a Bible, old technology, which is a printed page, or new technology on an app, on your phone or a tablet, open it. If you haven't got one, we've got plenty of uh, Bibles in the auditorium. I would really encourage you, go grab one. Even if that means getting up from your seat and going to get a Bible, just go do it. And then in the auditorium Bible, you can turn to page 966, 966. By the way, somebody came to us the other week and said, you put up these page numbers, it's never that page in my Bible. No, it's not that page in your Bible, it's the page in our Bible in the auditorium, okay? So, uh, page 966, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Now it's good, guys. Uh, thank you. Matthew 2 from verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, when he stayed until, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, that's the prophet Hosea, Hosea 11 verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. 
three thoughts on, on this text. Uh, firstly, Ezra chapter 2 and verse 21, the Old Testament book, tells us that 123 men returned to Bethlehem after the Babylonian captivity. That essentially means that by the time we get to Jesus' day, there would have been about a thousand inhabitants in the vicinity of Bethlehem, which through the calculations would mean that between 18 and 30 males under the age of two lost their lives. Now, here's the point of this. We don't hear much of this or any of this at all in other uh, sources, and so some question that. But the reality is, while we read this text and we're heartbroken, while we know that this incident would have been devastating to all of the mothers whose children were murdered, the reality is, in the grand scheme of Herod's atrocities, this was not even par for the course. You see, secondly, Herod was a complex man. He was racially an Arab. He was religiously a Jew. He was culturally a Greek. And he was politically a Roman. This week, Vipker and I went shopping. We went into one store, and the cashier was talking to us and said, oh, you're not from around here. Where are you from? I said, I'm Welsh. And then he asked Vipka. She said, I'm German. And the cashier said, Ch the children? Children? to which I said, yes, plenty of them, and they're confused. <laughs> Our family may be complex, but it's got nothing on the complexity of the man Herod. He personally led his armies onto 10 battlefields. He had 10 children. He had two of his sons murdered. His favorite wife he had killed, and after he had her killed, he would walk around the palace shouting her name, and when the servants wouldn't bring her to him, he would have them whipped, beaten. He would have them beaten. Herod also wanted the land to mourn after he had died. And so he had instructions for 1,000 noblemen to be placed in the, I think it's the theater of Judea, and he gave instructions that on the day of his death, all of these noblemen were to be executed because he wanted there to be mourning in the land when he died. Now, he tried to commit suicide in his old age around this time because there was, he was old and there was a lot of pain, but a guard saw him and stopped him. The rumor went around that Herod was dead. The crown prince said, okay, now I can rule. Herod heard about this, had the crown prince executed. Five days later, Herod died, and all of these Jewish noblemen who should have been murdered were actually freed. And rather than there being mourning in the land because Herod was dead, there was rejoicing. So listen, there may not be a lot about these, the murder of these babies in external sources. But the point is, Herod's atrocities were so cruel and so barbaric that the murder of a dozen infants doesn't even get a mention. The guy was incredibly cruel. He was a murderous man, and killing a dozen infants is easy to overlook. The third thing about this text, which is interesting, is that we have a number of Old Testament citations in there, three of them, but in Matthew's gospel itself, we actually have 42 explicit Old Testament citations. In total, there are probably over 60, but in the gospel itself, there are 42 explicit citations of the Old Testament. Now, there's a reason Matthew does this. This is what one commentator, David Garland, in his commentary reading Matthew, says about these citations. 
The things that Jesus did and that happened to him were predetermined components of an age-long design of God. This conviction reassures the reader of God's ultimate control over events then and now. Notice the phrase, please, predetermined components of God's age-long design. Predetermined components of God's age-long design. A couple of things on this. We're going to have to ask a question. Was the murder of infants the predetermined component of God's age-long design? But secondly, we're going to have to deal with the fact that Matthew's use of Old Testament citations is part of his intent to show that God is in perfect control of history. Matthew, in the way that he talks about the Old Testament, does use the Old Testament to show God's sovereign control over all of history. There are a number of phrases that reveal Matthew's use of the Old Testament to show divine purpose. And I want us to dig into this, which is why I want you to look at your Bible. In Matthew, he uses a phrase. It's called hina, hina. It basically translates as in order that. Matthew will talk about an event, and then he will quote the Old Testament using this hina clause. It means in order that. I walked onto this stage in order that I could bring you God's word, purpose, hina. He also uses another one, hapos. It basically means so that. Our worship arts team are working and practicing very hard so that the Christmas experience will be a weekend to remember. The hapos word here emphasizes the method involved in accomplishing the purpose. They're practicing really hard. So all through the gospel, Matthew quotes from the Old Testament to show age-long purpose. Over and over and over again, predominantly he uses these two phrases, but he uses some others too. And all of these other phrases all of these other formulas use what is called strong conjunctions. A conjunction is a connecting word uh, that basically will connect words, phrases, and ideas. Think about the English word and. And. He walked to the stage and. Okay? Conjunctions, strong conjunctions. So over and over again, Matthew has this rule, this, this way of doing things. There is an event there is, the, there is the strong purpose clause that is there. Then there is the Old Testament over and over and over again. And he follows this pattern extensively, except in this section. Except right here. In two ways, in this section, he breaks his own rules. How many of you would admit to being rule breakers here? Any of you speed on the way into church today? Why do we break the rules? Why do we break the rules? Sometimes people break the rules because they just like causing trouble. I read recently of a tribe in Africa that decided to uh, invade the next village and take the, the throne of that tribal king. 
So the warriors invaded the village, they stole the king's throne, they took it back to their grass hut, and they stored this throne in the rafters of the hut, and then basically proceeded to party. They must have partied really, really passionately because all of a sudden the rafters broke and the throne fell down, injuring a number of the warriors. The moral of the story is simple. Those who live in grass houses should not stow thrones. That's basically the moral of that one. I'm glad some of you are awake with me. The point, people break the rules just because they're rebels and, and they like doing that. But there's another reason that people break rules. It's often to draw attention to something that needs highlighting. This is a biblical pattern. You establish a routine. You establish a pattern. You repeat the pattern over and over and over again, and then you break it. Why do you break the pattern? You break the pattern to draw an important lesson out that cannot, should not, and must not be missed. But unfortunately, sometimes the English language just doesn't pick this up. And because it doesn't pick it up, we miss the perspective on the text. Matthew breaks his own rules here a number of times, and it begins in verse 15. Have a look at verse 15. I've already highlighted this. Verse 15 speaks of Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son, being fulfilled when Jesus leaves Egypt. Remember the routine. The pattern is an event happens, the purpose clause is used, and then the Old Testament is cited. Here we have in verse 15, the Old Testament verse being cited and the event doesn't happen until verse 19. He flips the script. Why does Matthew start with the Old Testament reference to Egypt before the event has even begun? He doesn't do this normally, so why does he do it here? The answer is pretty simple. He wants us to realize that Egypt is being used in this text as a place of refuge, not as a place of bondage. Egypt, at numerous places in the Old Testament, is a place where God's people can flee to. So Matthew begins the infancy story of Jesus with the journey of Jesus into Egypt for refuge and he does it because the parallel here needs to be made between Jesus and Jacob. Old Testament Jacob. You know the story. Jacob had a number of sons. They didn't like Joseph. So they planned for Joseph to be basically sold into slave trade. Joseph goes into Egypt. Joseph is discovered to have the hands of God on him, rises to the second of command in all of Egypt. A famine strikes the land, and Jacob's family basically take refuge in Egypt for safety. Now, when many of us think about Egypt, we think of Egypt, the bad Egypt. 
What Matthew wants us to do is to see the similarity between Jacob and Jesus. That's why he breaks the pattern. The story begins by making Jacob's life foreshadow, and I'll explain this in a second, foreshadow the life of Jesus. So he breaks the pattern in reversing the order. Old Testament citation, then the event. Why Egypt is a good place in this part of the story. Now, he breaks the pattern again in verse 17. Have a look at verse 17. This is the reference to Rachel weeping over her children. Now, I've just referred to purpose clauses, Hina, Harpos, but here we have a different word. We have the word then. In English, we may not grasp the difference, but in Greek, there is a difference because the purpose clause isn't emphasized as strongly as it is in all of the other clauses. He changes the word slightly but significantly. Now, this is only true in one other Old Testament reference in Matthew's gospel. Here, what's the similarity between the two stories? Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Then, not Hina, not Harpos, but then. This is Tote, then. Why does Matthew do this? Notice the presence of evil in both texts. The foundation for both texts is evil. One of them is Judas's actions of betraying Jesus. The other one is Herod's murderous actions in killing the infants. Something's going on here. And it's basically Matthew's reluctance to ascribe evil to the purpose of God. I know I'm on thin ice here in reformed heartland that everything is under God's sovereign control, but at the end of the day, the text cautions us not to ascribe evil in murdering infants to the direct purposes of God. God did not orchestrate the murder of infants so that he could get Jesus to Egypt. God does not will evil and death, Matthew is saying, because of Herod's wickedness because of the sin that grips and controls the heart of people, a cry was heard in Rama. But the brilliance of the Bible, the brilliance, and we're going to see this in a second, of the way that Matthew puts the story together, what we discover is even though a cry was heard in Rama because of Herod's evil actions, even though cries go out around the world because of the sin of people that causes bad things to happen, yet because of God's great love, something would be done through a child whose life seems to parallel the experience of Jacob. Jacob. Jacob was given a new name in the Bible, right? Any of you know what that name was? Israel. 
Israel. Genesis 32, 28. And Jacob, Israel, took refuge in Egypt in the same way that Jesus does. And just as Israel's experience continues in Egypt, so too Jesus' experience continues in Egypt. Matthew will not ascribe evil to God, but portrays God working against evil by tethering Jesus' story to Israel's story. Now, I wish I had time to go into this, but I don't. So pull out your cameras and have a look at that. This is the work of Peter Lightheart. And he does this for every section of Matthew's gospel, showing you how the story of Israel is tethered to the story of Jesus, how Israel's story foreshadows the entire experience of Jesus himself. So in this point of the story, it's bad, it's sad, it's evil, but... Israel's experience foreshadows the experience of Jesus. And Jesus enters Egypt to find refuge, just as Joseph's family did. And from here, both of the stories, Israel and Jesus, begins to work out in remarkable symmetry. See, folks, it's not that the slaughter of innocents happened in order for God to portray Jesus as the obedient Israel. It's just that in the slaughter of innocents, we see sinful people doing their thing. They've been doing it from the beginning of time. And we see God doing His thing, which is redeeming all things through the expression of His obedient servant, Jesus. So where does this story begin? It begins in Bethlehem. How does it continue? It continues with both Jesus and Israel in exile. There's a point being made here. That's why Matthew includes Rachel's citation. Have a look at verse 18. In verse 18, we read of Rachel weeping over Bethlehem. Who was Rachel? Jacob's wife. The parallel with Jacob is obvious. With Israel is obvious. Jacob's wife. Now, if you know anything about Rachel, you know that she died giving birth to a child called... Some of you said Benjamin, right? That's the name that Jacob gave the child. Jacob means son, uh, Benjamin means son of my right hand. Now hold on to this because this is awesome. Rachel, before she dies, gives the child a name which means son of my sorrow. I I love this. Jesus was called the man acquainted with sorrow and grief. But where is he now? Because of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he is now the son at God's right hand. 
See, something's going on in these citations that we miss. Matthew is tying the story of Jesus to the story of Israel, to the, to the grief of Rachel, who dies giving birth to her son. She calls him the son of my sorrow. Everything seems lost. Even in Bethlehem, everything seems lost. But he would one day be the son at God's right hand. No matter how lost and desperate things seem, God's got this. Evil will not win. And how does Matthew achieve this? He achieves it not by citing Genesis, but by going to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 is the one of the highlights in the Old Testament. It talks about the new covenant and the great redeeming work that God would do. Look at this. This is what the Lord says, a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children. And this is interesting, right? Because in the Genesis text, Rachel dies giving birth. But as Jeremiah, the prophet inspired by God to lead God's people through that period of the Babylonian exile, looked at what was going on. God gave Jeremiah a picture of Rachel, now symbolizing not a grieving mother over the loss of her child, but Mother Israel herself. Why? Because Jacob was Israel. And now she's not grieving over the loss of her child, she's grieving over the loss of her nation. Everything seems lost. Everything seems hopeless. But this is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. And from here, Jeremiah is given this vision of a new covenant, a new work where God would take the law and his will and his purposes, deal with sin once and for all, and put the word of God into people's hearts and minds. Behold, God says, this is what I will do when the child returns. Everything seems lost. But the reality is, there is so much hope. Jeremiah's prophecy was given 600 years before Jesus was born. It begins with exile into Babylon. But years later, through the life of Jesus, we see the story of Israel coming. And even in this moment of great mourning and distress, Jeremiah wants us to realize Distress and death is not the end. God will work through sin, through His obedient servant, Jesus. Here's what I want you to know. In the Genesis story, Rachel dies, and Jacob puts a, a gravestone just outside the city of Bethlehem. You see, in the Bible... Bethlehem is a place of death. But through the death of God's Son, the place of death will be forever known as the place where life began. How many of you have ever thought of Bethlehem as anything but a town of life? 
how quickly we can forget our own stories. Bethlehem was once a place of death, but because of the death of God's Son, even death itself becomes a place of life. Let's begin to bring this home. The title of today's message is called Taking the Wide View. Sometimes when we're in a situation where all seems lost, just like those mothers would have felt on the day when Herod murdered their children, just like Mary and Joseph may well have felt when they would have heard from Joseph that they needed to head to Egypt. Everything seems lost. Sometimes when we're in a situation where everything seems lost, we need to take the wild view and the wide view and realize that God has got this. God's got this. Take a look at this photo. This is Christmas 2011. And the the little guy in the middle there with the eyes that can't quite work out what's going on. That's Jaden. That's my son. This is seven years ago. Yesterday we had a, a sibling Christmas party where we get all of the siblings all together, and, and we'll do this for birthdays. We'll try and do this for Christmas, and we get them together. And every time we get together, I, I think of that. We took that photo, and, and it's still got quite a place in my kitchen, and it has since, since the time we, we took the photograph. And, and right then, the children were basically just being placed into foster care. So we had Jaden uh, at home with us. And intermittently over the years, Jaden would just come back to our home. And whenever he would come, he would look at that photo. And seriously, he, he would take this photo, he would sit down, and he would look at it for what seemed like an eternity. And I would look at this and I would think, I'd love to know what's going on inside his head. What's he thinking? What's he feeling as he looks at this? The lady you see in there is an incredible lady called Irene who had a passion for foster children and the modern-day orphans. And, and she started a, a faith-based foster care ministry in our church in Tampa that's now in 40 or 50 churches in the Tampa Bay area. An incredible lady. And I, I remember telling her about what Jaden would do, just having a look at the photo. And um, she would say, Craig, you, you know why, don't you? I said, Irene, I don't. And, and she said, Craig... So many children in the foster care system don't have any positive reminders of their past. She said, Craig, one of the best things that you can do for a child in the foster care system that comes to live in your home is take photos, and when they leave, give them a photo album. Because for so much of their life, they're just overlooked. And when a child sees a photo like this, there is so much power in a child who's been constantly overlooked observing how central they are in someone else's world. See, when you, get a, when you get a photo like this, you're sucked into the moment, right? You're sucked into the story. You're sucked into the pain. But that's not the only way that photos work. And all too often, when we're going through a season of hardship, 
We get sucked in to a photo just like this. When I think what we need to do according to the Bible is see this. Thank God for panoramic phones and a 16 by 9 screen, right? <laughs> My family is still on here. Jordan obviously didn't like the photo because he wouldn't look at the camera. No, another one, Dad. But it's only as the truth of this text came to me, I realized the power of this photo. See, this is the wide view. My family is still in it, or a portion of them. But what do you see when you look at that? Don't you just see the chasm of the south to the northern rim? Don't you see the immensity of the landscape? When we think about the wide view, the picture we're supposed to see is of a landscape that's so vast, that's so big, that reminds us of the bigness and the greatness of the God who made it. And see, the problem is for so many of us, when we're going through hardship and pain, we think of the little close-up portrait, we don't think of the wide shot. But when we think of the wide shot here, we see a completely different picture. See, when I look at this picture, I take my eyes off me, and I'm looking at that wider landscape that I know that God oversees. You see, there's so much more in this picture than me. I want to suggest to you that that was what God was trying to say to Mary and Joseph in Matthew chapter 2. Think about how this would have been for them. Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit and has been ostracized and she's basically fortunate to get away with this with no kind of, with a life. Then she discovers that after these three guys that have brought gifts, by the way, you know what the gold, silver, frankincense, and myrrh could have been used for? Paying for their life in exile for the next two years. Thought about that? Then they have to walk 200 miles to Egypt. And how long are they going to stay? No, I'll tell you when to go home. Two years, we think. Two years. How do they feel in this moment? See, if they would have just have been thinking about their pain and their suffering, they wouldn't have seen all of this. But God gave them words to hold on to, right? Steve talked about that last week, Anna and Simeon. He gave them words to hold on to, promises to hold on to. And if they'd hold on to those promises and lift up their heads, maybe they would be able to see what God is doing. You know, the amazing thing for me when I think about the story of Mary and Joseph is this. The real royal family, and you know why I say the real royal family is a Brit, I cannot say the royal family and not think about the royal family. But the real royal family in this part of the story are saved through flight, not a miracle. In our first service, sitting right where Ken and Christy are sitting right now, there were David and Esther, the couple from Nigeria. Remember that story? They saw their family members brutally hacked to pieces by Islamic fundamentalists. They were saved. 
not by a miracle. They've seen God do plenty of miracles, but they were not saved by a miracle. They were saved because they fled. I wonder how many of you have gone through hardship, being sucked into a world where all of your thinking is just about how hard this is, and you pray for a miracle, and the only thing that God seems to give you is the gift of another day. See, I think if we're going to see Christmas through the eyes of a text, we need to realize that sometimes running is a good thing. Not sure? Walkway. Mark Como yeah, in uh, Sky Bricks. 5. Uh, uh, well, this, this is very interesting. <laughs> Apparently, the Bears decided yeah, to right, you know, move around. All the garbage cans are out, too. Mm, yeah, just something. a couple of minutes ago, the Bear left the clearing in the backyard there, and he made his way over to the driveway over on Mayfield. He came down that driveway, down Mayfield, and now he's on Briggs, and now it looks like he's got turning into another driveway here. We're going to kind of maneuver around and see if we can get another shot of him. Um, but, uh, there's yeah, he a person walking oh, right uh, there. Oh, okay, man. we got someone uh, resident there. <laughs> he yeah. just saw the Bear. Oh, I love that. There he is, engrossed in his own little cell phone world, right? And he sees the big black bear right in front of him. He turns around and runs. See, there are times in our life when running is a good thing. It's not a sign of failure. It's not a sign of defeat. It basically says, today is not my greatest day. But because I can run, it's not going to be my worst. For some of us dealing with hardship, that's God's word for us right here. You prayed for miracle. You prayed for the divine way out in the way that Mary and Joseph would have done. But all that gives, God gives you is the ability to walk. Today may not be your greatest day, but thank you. God, that through His grace and through Jesus' death, sin no longer has the power to hold you captive. You will live to fight another day. What I love about Matthew, and I wish I had time to do this. Some of you are like deer in headlights. Man, he's taking me all different angles with the text. I could keep doing this, believe me. But I want you to look at this verse. We've already looked at Jesus' experience, copying Jacob's experience. Now, Jesus' experience becomes other Christians' experience too. Look. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Jesus is talking about what's going to happen to his followers when the temple is destroyed and Rome flattens it. Let no one in the house stop, go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. See the nativity story in this again? Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. You see what Jesus is doing? He's tying his experience into the recurring experience of Christians who come after him. Over and over again, Matthew will do this in the text. He basically says Jesus' experience is built on the experience of all of Israel. And then Matthew chapter 10, if you want to read it at home, verses 16 to the end, he basically says all of these things are going to happen to disciples, but guess what? They happen in the story to him first. Sometimes, folks, there are seasons. Even though God can do abundantly more than we ask, think, or imagine, there are sometimes seasons when all we're given is the gift of another day.
Sometimes running is a good thing. So here's the point. We see Christmas through the eyes of this text when we do three things. Firstly, if you're in a season of pain and hardship, refuse to ascribe evil at work in our world and at work in yours directly to the hand of God. Pastor Nate last week in our staff meeting shared a story about a, of the Christmas store of a, of a lady who came in and sat around the table with him, and, and Nate just said, how can I pray for you? And she just shared her struggles, everything she was going through. She explained that no matter what she did, she seemed to experience one setback after another. And then she said words like, it's just as if God is against me. Any of you felt like that? Nate looked at her with boldness and compassion and declared that because of Jesus, God is not against her. God is for her and God is with her. And in that moment, that non-churched woman broke down in tears. God is the bringer of blessing, not evil. Let that word be true for you too. God is not against you. God is for you. And we become like Jesus when we refuse to ascribe evil at work in our world directly to the purposes of God. Secondly, we see Christmas through the eyes of the text when we flex our hope muscle and take the wide view on our struggle. All through this series, Steve and I have basically said hope is not a star we wish upon, but it is a muscle that we flex. The royal family were preserved by flight, not by miracle. And when we flee to fight another day, we're taking the wide view. God's control of our world will fight through evil in this world and at work in mine. I will trust him no matter how bleak it seems. Church, flex your hope muscle. Take the wide view. God has this. Lastly, for some of us, battling hurts, habits, and hang-ups, we stumble upon completely. We see Christmas through the eyes of this text when we surrender ourselves to God and flee from sin. In our battle against sin, we must realize that not every day is going to be our greatest day. On some days, the best we can do is live to fight another day. And that's why Paul told his young mentor or protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, flee from sin. Flee from sin. No matter how hard the road gets, we are to fight for our tomorrow because God's got this. Today may not be your best day, but through fleeing from sin, we all live to fight another day. You remember, and I'm wrapping up with this, the Apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh. What it was, we don't know. Some people think it was something to do with his eyes. Some people think it was a, a tormentor, somebody who just tormented him, somebody who stood against him constantly. You remember, he went before God in three times. On three separate occasions, that means. It doesn't mean that God got down, Paul got down on his knees and said, God, take this thing away from me, take this thing away from me, take this thing away from me. It means it was so overwhelming to him on three separate occasions that he got down on his knees and he said, God, please, please, take this thing away from me. And you remember what God said? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. The miracle of the Bethlehem Egypt story 
is that even in their vulnerable state, Mary and Joseph and Jesus were never more safe. They were weak, they were fragile, but God had this. Church, God has you too. Trust Him and surrender to His will.